This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a best of episode, Spycraft and Intelligence, featuring conversations with former members of the intelligence community and intel analysts. Douglas London, Rick Prado, Clint Emerson, Samuel Katz, Mark Polymeropoulos, Fred Burton, David Kilcullen, and Kara Frederick. Here they are. Douglas London. Douglas London is a retired CIA operations officer and the author of the book, The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. He served as a U.S. Marine before joining the Central Intelligence Agency in 1984, where he worked for 34 years, equal time on either sides of 9-11. His job was the clandestine collection of human intelligence that comes from people who provide secrets valuable to the United States. Here's Douglas London. Now, you talk about that a lot, the paramilitary side of the house um, versus the case officer side of the house and what happened at 9-11 to really change the culture of the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, And you talk about the CIA as being at a crossroads. And has it been in a crossroads since 9-11 or is this now in 2021? Are we at another crossroads now that we're essentially out of Iraq, essentially out of Afghanistan, um, that that, uh, we're we're moving forward here? Um, And how has that changed from the original charter of the CIA in 1947 to to what it has become today? so what, what is that cultural shift? And are we at a new crossroads now in 2021? A different one maybe than we were in 2001. No, fair question. So from 9-11 on, I think less than a crossroads, we were on a descending path. Mm. We were on a path away from our charter. The CIA's charter is, in fact, foreign intelligence collection, analysis, and covert action. There's supposed to be some balance. And generally, covert action is something, if you want to keep it deniable, you don't do very much of. It's very selective. It has to be basically tested against, do we really need to do this? Is there any other way to accomplish this goal? And do we need to do it secretly, right? So can the US military conduct an operation or do we need to do it where the United States says, we don't know what you're talking about because the CIA did it. Um, Do we need to covertly influence or can diplomacy take care of that? And just, you know, a good narrative on the part of the government. So we slid so much towards covert action activities and unfortunately not enough covert influence because I actually think that's a good one and would have been very useful in countering extremism and terrorism and such like that. But really then became a very paramilitary focused organization where our goals were find, fix, finish in terms of terrorist targets. Um, Unlike the Vietnam era where the CIA had a huge footprint in Vietnam, it didn't really affect the overall mission. It didn't affect the overall clandestine service. There were professional paramilitary people being sent in there. There was a paramilitary mission, which they did well. Uh, And then they came back and some were sort of rebranded and tried to put in traditional jobs or kept in the paramilitary side. The CIA, and and this part I agree with, rotated everybody through the war zones, or pretty much everybody through, on the clandestine side, on the operational side, not on the analytic or support, but but a great many of them went because obviously support tends to often be bigger than the teeth of the dog, mm-hmm. right, in terms of making it function. So a great many of us went. But what, what happened was careers were being advanced not on, hey, you know, that woman recruited a great Russian agent. It's, hey, that person ran a great platform in a war zone. 
or that person was part of that paramilitary program or that kinetic program. So there was less of that nurturing of classic espionage skills and tradecraft skills and, and much more on the other skills. And those are the people who were then advancing who would in turn have less classic traditional operational experience as they rose up, which would then sort of give them a different perspective on human intelligence, on the value of agents, on the value of those handling our agents, which put us, I think, on this descending path, which changed the culture. Um, I talk in my book and I, and I regularly say uh, how in my day, as even a junior officer on my first tour, I would go in and see the chief of my division, now a center chief, this equivalent to like a, a, a general, right, in charge of a, literally a division uh, of troops, right, though much smaller for us. Uh, and it would be a first name thing because it was all about them being in touch with the workforce and then kind of charging my motivation by going, tell me about your agents, tell me about the cool things you're doing, Doug. That simply went away where our senior officers became chief and sir and untouchables and, and in a position where they didn't want to hear a different opinion than what they had already come to conclude. That was the descending path. Crossroads today, absolutely, because there is at least a recognition that our mission has to change. It sounds kind of familiar. We need to spy on the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians. You know, okay, I remember that pretty well. <laughs> Right, that's classic espionage. We're not going to be sending, you know, drone strikes into Moscow. We're not going to be, you know, detaining Chinese officials and putting them in black sites. We need to recruit them as spies and run them so that they don't get caught. We need to counter Russian disinformation or Chinese disinformation or cyber attacks from them, the Iranians, the North Koreans, and God knows how many criminal organizations are out there doing that. That means being smarter, not just being stronger. That's not just brute force. So we do find ourselves now at that crossroads, but it's a difficult place to be because the leadership ranks have been so built by those who profited from the last 20 years in terms of personal advancement, right? And personal professional advancement that uh, we didn't really reward as much those who were focused on tradecraft. And to your point, and I don't want to steal your thunder for we get to it later on accountability, when things did go wrong, rather than sort of internally, and not to the American public, but internally go, what did we do wrong? Who's responsible? And does someone need to be disciplined? It was all about circling the wagons. It was all about deflecting the, the accountability. And you're not going to learn from that. And you're only going to perpetuate those who made mistakes as they continue to invest because they'll make the same mistakes again. So I think the current leadership is at a great place right now. They have the opportunity. Uh, Ambassador Burns does. Mr. Cohen does. Dave Marlowe, the new chief of the clandestine service. And these are three men that I actually respect. I've worked with all of them. I admire all of them. Um, and I, I think their heart's in the right place. I see some good reflections, uh, at least what I see publicly, in terms of people being moved out, people mm -hmm. being moved in, and taking care of our people. The Havana Task Force, the Syndrome Task Force, I think you know that was something that Gina Haspel would not do. Pompeo, obviously, would, would not even consider it. And I think that means a lot to the workforce. I think they will likewise, I hope, embrace the ideals of the diversity and inclusiveness we need. And it's not just you no know, political correctness. We're a foreign intelligence service. I'm an old white guy. Who's going to be more effective in some countries, an old white guy or somebody who can look the part, speak the language, understands the culture? It makes us a stronger intelligence service. It's not a political info. Rick Prado. 
Rick is a retired CIA operations officer who specialized in paramilitary, counterterrorism, and special clandestine operations. He would go on to retire as the CIA equivalent of a two-star general after serving for 24 years. He's also the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Here's Rick. You know, I was going to ask you this, this later, um, if it was appropriate, but um, because you bring it up now, uh, what have you noticed over the, the last 20 years, 25 years, particularly maybe the last five years, six years, seven years, uh, about this country and uh, it's um, it getting comfortable with some of those things that you saw in your family saw in Cuba, but seeing that in this country as the as as progress, um, how, how do you, what do you feel about that, or do you notice that? I'm sure. Oh, you do. I, absolutely, <laughs> and, and it scares the living daylights out of me yeah. because um, you know you hit on something very astute a little while ago that I've echoed several times. We don't know how good we have it in this country. You know, I had a lady that I was talking to a couple of months ago and, and I mentioned that and she says, well, I've been to Mexico. I said, no, ma'am, you were in Cancun on a cruise. There's a difference between going to Mexico and living in Guadalajara than, than you going on a cruise to, to uh, one of the, the, the tourist sites. And that is, you know, it's a blessing. It is a blessing that we're so comfortable that our states are the size of other countries. We have this homogenous, you know, continent that we are buffered by oceans and, 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 uh, and we, we're just spoiled. But when people travel and live overseas, or like in my case, in my parents' case, because, you know, everybody feels for, sorry for Rick. Rick is the luckiest guy in the world. I am the luckiest man in the world. I came to the best country in the world and served it and still trying to serve it, that trying to pay back that debt of honor. But you know who paid the price? My mom and dad. They were never the same, especially my mom, because it was a very traumatic period. So I see these trends of socialism, utopia, and let's give everybody, you know, socialism, and, and I've said this before, socialism is the mask that communism wears to lure you into his lair. There is no difference between socialism and, and, it, and it becoming communism. And it's totalitarian, is, is complete control. And one thing that they do say that is true is that everybody's going to be equal, equally be miserable with the exception of the leadership. Mm-hmm. There's a joke in Cuba that if you see a house that has been painted in the last 50 years, that's a senior party member. Yeah. That's why I think this is so important for uh, Americans to read right now, particularly those that are in that formative stage in their lives where they're so impressionable um, to have an appreciation for, for what we have. Because without books like this, without people like you talking about this uh, and these stories, they just uh, they just go to the next game on their, their smartphone or, or their TikTok video or whatever it is. Uh, and meanwhile, we're headed down that path that, uh, to giving up these freedoms that so many people died for. And uh, I mean, you, you, you write about it here in such a powerful way. Um, you say that in school, our teachers told us to watch each other and our families. If we heard anyone saying anything against Castro, we were to report it at once. The new regime weaponized us against our own families in perfect 1984-esque fashion. Around town, every block had a designated official who recorded his neighbor's movements. Ears were always open, listening to the slightest critique of Castro, his revolution, or of Marxism in general. 
Once reported, those people vanished, taken in the night by the stormtroopers of the 26th of July movement. As a Marxist indoctrination soon dominated every aspect of our lives in school, life back home became a growing nightmare for the middle class. A lot of people in the town had always been jealous of my family's success. We'd endured threats before, but this seemed different. Various revolutionary committees were formed, led by some of the true dregs of our city. Now that they had achieved a level of power they hadn't under a capitalist system, they took revenge on those more successful. Yeah. You, you, can you imagine that when in Cuba, when you, and my, by the way, my wife is Cuban. She went through the same thing. Uh, she's younger and, and she left later. She came out in, uh, in uh, I don't know, 68 or something like that, 69. And, but when you registered yourself for a passport, the Communist Party would show up at your house and inventory every single household item, glasses, silver spurs that my dad had, whatever it was. And when you got on that plane, before you got on that plane to leave Cuba, they would do that, that inventory again. And if there was anything missing, you could not leave. And it was all corruption. They, they were divvying up the prices. And that was one of the reasons my dad could get out because he had a 57 Pontiac that more than one general or captain or whatever the heck they were, uh, uh, you know, wanted or lusted after. So it, it is, there, there's no hiding what communism is. And the fact that socialism is just, it's just the lure. And, and I love that this, you talk about this because this struck me as well. And I hadn't thought about it before. hadn't read it anywhere else before. Um, and it's you looking back you know, retrospectively on what would have happened, maybe had you stayed there another month, another year, another two years, uh, you say your school had been tasked with selecting several of its most promising students to be sent to the Soviet Union for further education. My name was on that list. This would not have been optional. The government would simply put me on a plane to the Soviet Union, whether my parents agreed or not. In the years since, I've often wondered what would have happened to me if we had not received the tip. That's something else that tip I told you to get out of there. Would I have ended up a Marxist too? Would I have joined an intelligence service like Cuba's version of the KGB? Would, I'd like to think not, but the indoctrination those children were subjected to in the Soviet Union transformed most of them into revolutionary Marxists who later held positions of importance in the regime. I mean, wow, you were close to being put on a plane to the Soviet Union for further education. Yeah, the Prado luck holds out. Uh, my, <laughs> my uncle was... Uh... Um, my, my godmother's husband, who's my uncle, uh, he, um, he was a socialist. He was a communist, let's put it that way. But blood is a little thicker than, than, than other things. And he felt compelled to tell my dad that my name was on that list. So that, that was what precipitated me leaving even earlier, um, even though they couldn't get out. What's up, everyone? This is Jeremy, founder of Ironclad. I just wanted to thank you all for listening to an Ironclad original and helping to bring our shows to the top of the charts. In recent weeks, Reborn with Ashley Horner hit the top 30 in the Apple Podcast Fitness category, and Oil & Whiskey with The Roaster Shop hit top 20 in the automotive section. Also, Success Hotline and Mental Performance Daily have passed the 2 million download mark. And finally, Danger Close with Jack Carr is still crushing it with guests that include Chris Pratt, Tulsi Gabbard, Tokyo Vice author Jake Adelstein, Greyman creator Mark Greeny, and more. Check out Ironclad Shows wherever you get your podcast. Clint Emerson. 
Clint is a retired Navy SEAL who served for more than 20 years. He is also the only SEAL ever to be inducted into the International Spy Museum. He's the author of the books, The Right Kind of Crazy, The Rugged Life, The Boy Scout from Hell, as well as the 100 Deadly Skills series. Came back from that deployment, and that's when they said, hey, there's a special program going on. You know, do you want to play? And I was like, sure. And then that's when I moved into special activities. And uh, yeah. Were they standing up those new teams then, or was that uh, just kind of like a part of what you were doing? That was a, yeah, that was a small part of the bigger piece. You know, we I went over to Warcom and uh, worked directly for the Admiral. It was just me and a couple of guys, and they were like, ready, go. Just go figure it out. We're like, figure out what? And we're like, just figure it out. Oh, okay. Well, so we started getting footholds inside embassies all over the globe. And we started basically going into sales mode. While we were in sales mode, we were also in training mode and and then getting deployments under our belt in either small teams or as singletons. And then establishing a little bit of, uh, you know, battlefield experience, if you will. Um, but most of the time we weren't even inside the theaters. Uh, and really it was all about collection, you know, against, uh, anything, right. If it financed, we, we wanted to know about if it was, so if it was financing terrorism, if it was whatever, anything, any support arm of terrorism, that was, that was the deal was like, go after it and be as creative as you want. And so it grew and kept growing and kept growing. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to go to the NSA and they had one sealed billet we put out there. Was that the a new billet guy, or did that already exist? It, no, it was new. Okay. We put it there. Um, and we, the, the master chief who recruited me, he went out and sat in that seat first just to kind of get a lay of the land yeah. and figure out what our job was going to be. And then I was the second guy. And then I hung out there for a while. It was kind of a hybrid. I was wearing a lot of different hats. I was running some training I was also deploying for them. Uh, and then also, you, you know, when you, once you were in DC, you're kind of seals in DC end up getting leveraged for all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I was, I was wearing a lot of hats and it was a, a great, a great, uh, experience. Did you deploy uh, with the NSA was, or is that, uh, was that mostly uh, a management type position? It, no, they had uh, a couple of gigs that I went and did nice. that was uh, very techie related. Yeah. Um, did you have that training then, beforehand? Uh, that techie type stuff or was that like yeah. on the job type stuff? So you had to do that beforehand when you're, when you're learning this new skill after that last, right. after that first Iraq push, you're coming back, you're going to these different schools with a special activities yes. kind of bent to them, getting that skill set. Yeah. So right. any, yeah, to back up there, the training, there was, I mean, there's dozens of pipelines, yeah. right? And so I went to all of them. I mean, anything that existed, I went to, if it was, whether it was the agencies, or DOD, you know, anything I could find that related to any of that world. Um, yeah, I was in it. And then I would go on deployments uh, and kind of do a shakeout, if you will, yeah. right? I'd go over, hang out at an embassy, and then drum up work and then sell it, right? Say, hey, this is now an NSW capability, even though there was, they didn't know that there was just me and like one other guy at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we'd be like, yeah, we got, we got a lot. Yeah, we can do this. Yes, yes, yes. We just said yes to everything. Right. And, um, and it ended up leading to a lot of, you know, interesting stuff. And then at the NSA, it kind of bumped it to the next level on the tech side. Um, 
And then while I was up there, you know, some master chiefs from down south came up for a meeting. They realized, wait, there's a seal up here and he knows how to do all that shit. I'm like, they're like, you're coming with us. And then that, so I ended up at Damn Neck. And then, uh, yeah, and then I finished the career out there. No way. When you, when you went to NSA, what was your, what was your rank? I was a chief. Okay. Yeah. A chief by that point. I didn't know yeah. you had to like so, pretend you were something higher. Like I'm a, GS. Yeah. I may have been probably equivalent to like a GS 12, GS 13 ish yeah. during all that stuff okay. you know, with a blue badge and blue badge. you know, you name it. So it was, it was, uh, you were kind of in and you know, the sky was the limit really. And your imagination was the limit, uh, at the beginning. Then, you know, once we got overseas, started kind of figuring out what our path was going to be and where we could fill gaps that other units, you know, weren't able to do yeah. or weren't doing. Um, it really allowed us to, to lead the way, uh, to the point where some of the training pipelines I set up got accredited by SOCOM and became SOCOM programs of record, along with the technology. If you remember, there was a lot of these kits that started getting pushed out to the teams and, you know, that was, you know, just, you know, whatever, six of us that really kind of laid the foundation to get all that out there. And then, heck, man, it just took off after that. It had, you know, just like any program, it had a lot of uh, ups and downs and a lot of characters and leadership yeah. that come along. You know the deal. Or right. some some leaders are like, yeah, I support this. And others are like, I'm pulling your budget. And it's like, right. okay, you know, it's a little bit of a roller coaster, but it eventually planed out and, you know. It's uh, it has served the community really well, I think, in a lot of ways that most of the community will never know about. Yeah, that's amazing. What um, what was your favorite part of that training? That's different than uh, you know most SEAL training, the stuff that we normally do. We, and for those listening, we go to like land warfare training, the mountain warfare training, close quarter battle stuff. <laughs> you go to uh, the urban combat. You dive. You jump. You do all these different things. And uh, what Clint's talking about is definitely different outside of that realm. Um, what was your favorite part of that different side of training? If you can, if you can talk about it. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the comparison I like to use, and I know you'll appreciate it is, is the Jedbird teams of world war two, which was these Jedbirds were started by the OSS. And if people don't know, that's the office of strategic services. And they, they were the predecessor of the CIA and those Jedbirds were a coalition team, right? You had a, usually a Brit, uh, a Frenchman, uh, and of course, an American, and they would jump in behind enemy lines uh, and run sabotage, reconnaissance, you name it, uh, you know, in Nazi territory. And uh, one of their biggest responsibilities was to be gray, right? They had to, as soon as they'd land by parachute in the middle of the night, uh, they immediately would throw on the clothing uh, that the villagers wore, depending on where they were operating and the country. And they immediately had to assume projection and demeanor skills so that if they were co-located with Nazis that were driving by and, you know, occupied territory, they just had to blend in with everyone else. Um, and so I think, you know, when you fast forward and you add technology and you add a whole lot of just cool stuff, uh, that's probably the closest mm -hmm. uh, comparison I can make to um, the kind of things that we were involved in. Uh, training wise, I mean, man, there was so many, you, you know, when you're a SEAL, it's body armor, night vision guns, and, you know, and you've got your, your 22 buddies. Um, with this world, it was business casual, business class, you know, and, uh, and you didn't have your 22 buddies with yeah. you, right? 
So it was a uh, complete 180 uh, to taking your alpha male kind of instincts and demeanor and aura and subduing it with penny loafers and a calculator watch if necessary. Right. So, um, but at the same time, kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, you get on a plane and to go uh, do whatever and you're, you're on your own. That was probably the best part. And then later I started to really specialize uh, in CMOE, which is clandestine methods of entry. And I, another program that I got to build from ground up, and uh, did it the same way I built the others was, you know, you got to get trained and then you got to immediately just get overseas and start putting it to use. And so, you know, being able to get in to, you know, vessels, vehicles, structures, and containers is really what we focused on. Being able to get in with zero forensics and zero attribution in the United States government was the number one goal. And so with that comes a lot of technology um, and a whole lot of, uh, different operational risk factors that, you know, most people have no idea. I would say a CMOE operation is probably one of the most, like, it takes a lot. There's a lot involved. Yeah. I can't go into it, but I mean, there's a lot more than just walking up to a door and looking at the doorknob and, you know, and going inside. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to it, and uh, that uh, especially when you talk about cameras, um, you know, alarm systems. Uh, there is a world of uh, sensors that we had to uh, overcome, um, and when you talk about like a worst case scenario target, where they have you know five layers to their perimeter before you even get to the door. You can imagine, right? It oh, gets yeah. a little crazy. So, um, yeah, that that was all probably the best stuff that I uh, got to play around in. Yeah, yeah that's incredible. And then when you get to uh, development group, you continue to do kind of the same thing, just on that side of the house. Some of the similar things you were doing with uh, with NSA, but now you're doing it just for a, a military specific entity. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. So, I mean, I'm being trying um, to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. You know, as you know, like that, that world is, um, it's, it's massive, right? So you get a lot of people that come knocking on, on doors saying, Hey, can you guys go do this for us? So I would say a majority of, you know, like the work was always for, for other folks, yeah. you know, and we are always going, yes, yes, yes. Right. We're the, we're the proverbial hookers in SOCOM. We just say yes to everything and go for <laughs> it. So it's, uh. But yeah, that's that's pretty much everything I did was always for someone else for the most part, I'd say. It was very rarely for NSW. Hey everyone, it's Jack Carr here. Just in time for the holidays, I am launching a new collaboration with my friends at KC Cattle Company. KC is a veteran-owned company out of Missouri, and they raise some of the best beef in the country. This limited release collaboration will include two different steak bundle options. One bundle is geared toward the entire family and includes KC Cattle Company's award-winning Wagyu uncured beef hot dogs. And a second bundle option, my favorite, will include something special, a massive Wagyu tomahawk steak and a cross tomahawks branding iron. Awesome. These limited release bundles drop in late November, so be on the lookout for more release information soon, exclusively through the officialjackcar.com shop. 
Be the first to find out about my latest collaborations and more by signing up for the Jack Carr newsletter at officialjackcar.com. Samuel Katz. Samuel Katz is an expert on the Middle East, counterterrorism, and special operations. He's the former editor of the trade publication Special Operations Report and is the author of more than 20 books to include his latest, No Shadows in the Desert, Murder, Vengeance, and Espionage in the War Against ISIS. Here's Sam Katz. And what's interesting to me is that uh, both of those two people detonated these SVSS belts, um, whatever they they were, killing wife, children, innocents. Uh, and then you have Osama bin Laden, uh, who has an AK in his room, in his compound in Pakistan. There are shots fired. They're not suppressed uh, as part of that raid as, uh, as the operators are, are moving in and working their way up the stairwell. Um, people died defending him. He obviously sent people to their deaths uh, for a long number of years. And in the end, he did not grab that AK, did not grab that Kalashnikov and defend himself or his family. Uh, he didn't detonate an S-vest, but he did not grab that weapon that was within arm's reach either. So it was, it was interesting to me just the difference between these two guys, between al-Baghdadi and his predecessor and uh, and bin Laden. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. I think that the higher you go up with the food chain, um, in many cases, first of all, I don't think that bin Laden ever expected that there'd be knocks on the door um, and they wouldn't be the, um, the Uber Eats guy from from, you know, from the local um, shawarma place. I think he thought he was well protected because nobody had come to him um, previously. We don't know yet if the vests that um, were detonated on Baghdadi and the others um, were self-detonated or maybe remote. Mm. The um, I know that from a lot of the um, incidents in Israel, the terrorists um, who were so eager to send men and women to their deaths with um, devices strapped to their bodies um, are the first ones to raise their hand and surrender. Mm-hmm. The, the notion of martyrdom is good when it's somebody else. <laughs> That's a great line. That is a fantastic line. I'm going to write that down, actually. Write it down. The... Um, I, I think a way to think to look at this is that terrorism in many ways is a business for these people. Mm-hmm. And um, the bosses want to live the good life. Um, you know, in the world of terrorism, there's money, there's power. These are all very attractive um, um, commodities for bosses, for their families. And it trickles down like any organized crime entity. Terrorism is a criminal enterprise. Um, the, ideolo- the ideology and the religious part are components of it, mm. but it's all about money and power and, and yielding your um, your weapon and you know and and getting what you want. And I think that um, moving forward, um, maybe one of the weapons. Um, and I think that it's becoming part of the military operational guideline is making them poor. What's the line from the movie Trading Places? The best way to get even with rich people is to make them poor. Um, the Israelis started doing that years ago when they began targeting um, the money. Is that Harpoon? Is that what you write about in Harpoon? Yes. 
That's the one I haven't read. I need to, uh, I just ordered it though, before I jumped on, uh, on this podcast. Um, Mayor Dagan, who was the head of the Mossad, he had learned that in the West Bank, that it was money flowing in. Mm. Um, the terrorist groups were building schools and hospitals and markets and employing people. And all of a sudden, Mercedes were popping up and, and kids were going to schools overseas. And where's the money coming from? And the money was coming in from places like the Gulf and, and Iran. And the same thing for Al-Qaeda. The same thing for ISIS and the same thing for every other terrorist group. Um, you know, would the 9-11 hijackers have been able um, to carry out their attack if they couldn't afford flying lessons, if they couldn't afford all this? Funding the money element of terrorism is integral to um, everything. And I think when we look at in the future, hopefully um, much less than in the past that we we take a more holistic approach and and take different um, pillars of their fortress and dismantle them simultaneously as opposed to kind of doing military um, it's it's important to um, take away the perks of what being um, on the most wanted list and Mm. And having safe houses and all that um, you know, comprise. Oh, I'm interested. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to reading uh, reading that that harpoon. I hadn't. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that. Should be here in a, a few days. But uh, can you talk about who uh, Abu Omar Al Shinsani was? Um, and I have something I wanted to, to read about that because the writing in this is uh, aside from what you're what you're talking about um, is just it's so so well done. I mean, I love this. 16 top Islamic State field commanders greeted Abu Omar al-Shisani as he walked toward a darkened staircase in the cellar of a two-story home that was large enough for at least three families. The men looked tired, but they had become energized to see al-Shisani and his phalanx of bodyguards. A highly detailed map was spread across a large dining room table. Smaller maps were spread across chairs and draped on the wall. Small fluorescent light bulbs illuminated the room. The air inside was stifling with cigarette smoke. A fan buzzed as it twirled a steady rotation and blew a slight breeze of air inside a room that was crowded and stifling. The lieutenants parked their Toyota Land Cruisers far away from the house so that satellites and drones wouldn't be able to pinpoint exactly where the high-level gathering was taking place. The American combat aircraft approached from the east, from the rising sun, and through the established corridor of the attack against the Islamic State. The aircraft snuck in, completely by surprise, and were not subjected to anti-aircraft fire. The 500-pound precision bombs that were launched against the building hit at dawn's first light. The destruction of the two-story structure was absolute. All that was left of the building was a 45-meter deep smoldering crater. No one survived the attack. I mean, that's great writing. I mean, you. you could have just been, hey, they were in the house and the bombs dropped and they were done. Um, but the, the writing is, is fantastic there. But can you talk a little bit about him and how that, uh, that mission came about, how they targeted him? He was... Georgian by um, nationality uh, had um, come to the masterminds of 9-11 came from many parts of the Middle East where the jails had been emptied and people allowed to travel. And the same thing, um, ISIS attracted um, a rogues gallery of the who's who of bad guys. And he was one of them. He was the military commander, their chief of staff, um, so to speak, um, who was always um, 
he was he was he was meant to be an icon of the organization. He had a big red beard. Um, he looked different in many ways than the others. He liked to be photographed. But because he moved in such secretive circles, um, it was very hard to target him. And a lot of these individuals had either been prisoners of or had served in an intelligence or counterintelligence agency, which is why ISIS was so effective, because a lot of the people had military training before they went in. Mm. And then they just took all the lessons that they learned when they beat prisoners to extract confessions. They just took that information and they put it into their um, standard operating procedures. What made the Jordanian operation successful was the fact that tribes or operatives in the GID in Amman could call a counterpart, a relative, someone in the clan who was in Iraq or in Syria. And, and kind of say, we're, we're looking for this guy. And out of duty and out of honor, um, that information was easy to obtain because that person in, in the targeted country had resources and business dealings and people spoke. And they had, um, the world was very intermingled, intertwined with individuals. But of course, these are individuals that um, are off limits to um, to the West, and it wasn't the kind of thing, or there wasn't the kind of information that um, Connex boxes full of cash could buy. A lot of times, these were um, these were assets on the ground that operated by a, a system of loyalty of the desert that we couldn't understand, and the Jordanians could. The Jordanians had their fingers in it. And it was easy for them to find out where certain things were happening using sources. And they were able to get that information back um, to their commanders quickly. And then that information was acted upon quickly by coalition air force, air forces. And I think it's important to, to discuss that operationally um, and tactically. Uh, strategically, tactically, and overall operationally, um, the working together of the Jordanian military and intelligence services and those of this country um, were, in many cases, seamless and very successful. Mark Polymeropoulos. For more than 25 years, Mark was a critical member of the U.S. intelligence community, specializing in counterterrorism, human intelligence collection, and covert action. During his time at the CIA, which included assignments in Afghanistan and Iraq, he received the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, the Intelligence Commendation Medal, and the Intelligence Medal of Merit. He's the author of the book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Here's Mark. So, you know, everything did change on 9-11 for everybody, as you know, because, you know, we shifted so much to a counterterrorism focus. And then I spent, you know, the majority of the rest of my career um, doing CT work until the end where I did more on, on Russia. But, uh, uh, you know, but but your your regular job as a case officer where you're, you know, where you're, you know, posted either you know, overseas at, out of a U.S. government facility, um, you know, the agency with all their kind of craziness, as you know, about pre-publication stuff, I'm like, 
you can't say it's an embassy, but of course it's an embassy. <laughs> um, I think you went through some of that stuff and getting your books cleared. Too, I did. Right? Yep. I did. Um, so, but ultimately your job as an operations officer is, is to, is, you have a couple kind of key tasks. Um, one is primarily you're supposed to recruit new new agents, new assets. And and, and let me make a, a good point for, for everyone, your readers. I know you know this. Like a CI, there's CI officers. An agent is a foreigner who we recruit. Um, there are no CI agents who are who look like me, uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, in, you know, actually U.S. government employees. But ultimately, you know, we're looking for people who have access to to privileged information, non-public information. Um, so you're looking at you know Iranian nuclear scientists or Chinese military officers or Russian intelligence officers, um, Pakistani military officers. But you know, we are trying to penetrate those governments to gain information that help our policymakers uh, make the correct decisions. So my job is to find individuals. However, I can, and then you assess their vulnerabilities, and that's really the most interesting part of kind of intelligence work. At least it, it was for me, is because it's really it's a human, um, uh, it's a human aspect of it. Because I'm looking at that you have access to information you need. Well, now do you have something that where you're vulnerable? What kind of motivations do you have? Maybe ideologically you're not attuned, or you're not in tune with your own home country. You believe in the United States and our principles of of you know economic and and, and political freedom. Um, maybe you have money issues. Uh, maybe you want your kid to go to, you know, Yale uh, or just or, or whatever. So so ultimately, I'm looking for something that's going to get get a hook into someone to, to have them commit espionage and provide information to the United States government. And it's actually, you know, I, I mean, being an intelligence officer in the United States is not it, it's, a, it's a really good thing because it's America. You know, mm -hmm. you don't have to sell America. America, regardless of anything that's happening now in our political sphere, is still seen by the rest of the world as a land of political and economic freedom. You know, one of the things that I lived overseas in the third world, so I appreciate this country, warts and all, because yeah. the 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 you know uh, you know the other side of things uh, ain't so pretty, um, yeah. and and so so ultimately, but that's what I did. So I was I was running agents and recruiting agents, um, uh, and then of course working with foreign governments at all. We call it liaison. So we would have a relationship with another country's intelligence service where we kind of work together behind the scenes, and 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 that was done against traditional targets. So again, as I said before, Russians, Chinese. You know, Iranians, North Koreans, and then 9/11 happens, and our and our focus certainly shifts to to counterterrorism. Yeah, and so in those pre 9/11 years, uh, were you ever involved with a uh, like a handoff of of an agent? Like, what is that like? If you if you yeah. develop this trust with someone in one of these uh, these foreign nations, and then you're there for one year, two year, three years, whatever it might be, and then you have to go, maybe you leave the agency, you retire, whatever it is, but you have to do a handoff with somebody new. Right. Like how dicey is that? I'm sure every situation is a little bit different, but now this person who has put their trust in you all of a sudden has the new guy to figure out and develop that trust with them. And that just seems like a, uh, uh, like a tough one to, uh, to hand off, especially when you're dealing with life and death situations. Now, Jack, that's a, that's a great question. And that's actually what I was not really good at. So I was, mm -hmm. I was a very good recruiter. Um, you know, I have this outgoing personality. I'm Greek which means when I was serving the Middle East, you know, they kind of identified, you know, with us. I, I literally, I, I was in one Middle Eastern country one time and I remember as, uh, someone actually said, well, you know, I know you work at the U.S. Embassy, but you can't be a spy because you're actually Greek. And I'm like, that's what you want to think. That works for me. <laughs> um, but but ultimately, what, what when I would recruit an, an asset, mm -hmm. a lot of times it would end up being based on the personal ties that I had developed with them. And when it came to do what we call turnover, and really institutionalize the relationship because guess what you know th they're not spying for me they're spying for you know Uncle Sam. I actually had trouble with that sometimes because the, the and and even if this this agent was giving us great stuff, 
he'd be like, nah, I'm not, I'm not, nah, I'm not going to do that. Hand. I'm not going to do that turnover. I, I, right. Why don't you just stay? And I'd be like, well, cause I got to go home. <laughs> I've been here for three. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I actually always had trouble with that. And so what I learned kind of later on is, is, is when you develop these relationships in the developmental stage, and when you actually formally recruit someone, you got to make sure it's done, you know, you know, you know, through that, that this is a relationship with the CIA that that's individual is having, but also kind of, kind of start weaving in, you know, early on that, okay, you know, I'm not going to be here the whole time. Right. Um, it's just, our system is such that we turn over our, our agents. And there's a reason for that because you want it to be institutionalized, but mm. you got to remember. And the most, most incredible part about being an operations officer to me was that kind of, it's almost like a psych 501 class. This individual, by the way, has put their life in my hands. Right. And so that is an incredible amount of responsibility I have. Well, from that person's standpoint, well, okay, well, I got to break someone else in because I trust Mark, mm-hmm. but am I going to trust, you know, Suzanne or John or, or right. Jessica or whoever it is coming next? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And so that, that's hard. And, and you got to, you got to look at it from their perspective, because again, um, you know, the, uh, uh, especially when you go after some of these really harder targets, you know, the, the price for failure is, is not good. Right. Um, and, and I, you know, I tell a story in the book one time about an agent I was training and, and he looked at me and, you know, and, and, you know, and we were, we're actually in Europe. I was training him on a communication system. He was going back into his home country in, in the Middle East. Um, but he said to me, he said, you know, look, and he, he got, he was unbelievable. He goes, he goes, I get this, but let me just tell you something. You know, I know that, you know, we're going to meet probably once a month in our very careful surveillance detection routes and our, in our trade craft and the techniques we use to, to meet clandestinely an agent on the streets of a denied area. He said, but, and so you're, he says, Mark, I know you're going to think of me maybe, you know, uh, you know, a couple times a month. He goes, but I'm going to think about you every single day, because if you make one mistake, I'm going to die. And my whole family, my whole tribe's going to die. So just, you never forget that. And I was blown away by that. I mean, you know, cause that's a hell of a lot of responsibility. And I know, you know, I know what you did in your past, Jack, and there was a hell of a lot of responsibility. And, and so it's, it, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those times where you sit back, you're like, you know what, I can't mess up because if I do this, you know, I, I have this person's life in my hands and, and that makes you really, you know, that makes you work harder. That makes you want to be better. Um, and, and certainly, uh, you know, uh, take, uh, take this job very seriously. Yeah. Jeez. And having that, that having done that study in, uh, uh, of, of Afghanistan, knowing the players, um, kind of getting there, you know, after the, the Soviets withdrew, but uh, having an understanding of the culture already, uh, the players already, um, when, when nine 11 happened, wh- where were you on nine 11? And then did you init- sure. right away? know I know what this is. I know exactly what this tie is or how did that, uh, take sure. shape for you? Oh boy. What, what, a, what a, a great question. So actually, and I gotta be careful on how I say this, um, I was, I was posted in the New York area Got it. Uh, on 9-11. Um, in fact, we were not there that day. We were in Greece on vacation, but my daughter's daycare center was in World Trade Center 5. So I would have been dropping her off at that time. Um, I came back right away. Uh, actually, I, 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 you know, I, I kind of, you know, we we're stuck in Greece. There's no flights back. I remember with my young children going to the front of the line, the first one, the first flights out of Europe, out of, out of Athens, the airport was packed. And I, and I told my, my, my kids, I said, act sick. And so we walked up there. It wouldn't work now with COVID. No, no. We walked up there and, and I was like, I have a sick child. I have to get back. And they actually let us get on the plane. So I made it back home. And then from there, um, you know, I was, I was, I was actually, uh, uh, you know, seconded to the, uh, what's called the joint terrorism task force. Um, out of the uh, FBI field office in New York City because I spoke Arabic, and uh, and so you know off we went. And I, I remember you know only days after 9/11 we were walking through the the rubble, 
Um, and, uh, you know, it just, and, 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 you know, these things always, always stayed with me because, you know, in, in, you know, there was a tremendous loss of life of, of, of course, of Americans, but also of both, you know, New York city fire department and police, uh, uh, police, the police department as well. But I remember seeing there was, um, a New York city policeman playing a bagpipe. There, there, I mean, this is, this is only the, the place is still, it's still burning. It's smoldering. And it was the middle of the night and we were doing something. That I think we were trying to recover some, uh, you know, uh, trying to recover obviously personnel, but also, you know, documents and things like that. And, uh, and, and you're hearing this, this individual playing the bagpipe just kind of blew me away. Um, and, and look, I, I remember some of the, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to run a CIA paramilitary base years later in Afghanistan, um, 10 years after the anniversary of nine 11 and the param- the, the indigenous personnel, the Afghans still had, some baseball hats that one of my predecessors had all given the team, which were New York NYPD hats. And so just, you know, really emotional times um, from being in New York city during that, during that time period. Yeah. So interesting. So you got to hop on a flight fairly soon after nine yeah. 11 and have a, a transatlantic flight, meaning you had time to, to think a little bit um, for a lot of us, you know, it was just, it was go, go, go. Uh, I was already deployed. And so we knew we were, we figured we were going to Afghanistan. We ended up going to Kuwait instead and do some shipboarding stuff on Iraq and the oil embargo thing. But um, but you had time to reflect for a second on that flight. And a lot of people didn't have that right. time because they were, they were in it, especially if you're military or in, in intelligence services. Right. Um, so what are you thinking on that flight? Are you thinking sure. about, are you thinking about Al Qaeda? Are you thinking about bin Laden? Are you thinking about uh, how he's a guest of the Taliban? Are you thinking about us response uh, possibilities, what those could be like, what right. is that flight like for you when you have time, those hours in the air to reflect? So I'll tell you what I was thinking. And this is, this is reflective of a lot of, of, of CIA personnel. Um, I, I was thinking we, we failed. Uh, that, you know, and, and, and we failed in an almost impossible task. I mean, it's almost asking, you know, I mean, I don't know what kind of sports analogy or soccer goalie, you know, we let one pass. Well, it's hard. Um, but, but we failed. And, and I think, and, and, but, but based on that failure, you know, you were actually, you're, you're driven. And this is a terrible, not, not a terrible thing to say, because it's not a professional thing to say, but you're driven for revenge. Um, you know, we're, we're supposed to not have that feeling in, in our line of work. You know, you don't do things to get revenge on people, but you kind of do. <laughs> hey, it's a very human, uh, it's, it's part yeah. of human nature. Um, you know, and so, so, but ultimately is that, you know, we wanted, we, we knew who it was immediately. There was no doubt. Um, you know, I mean, when they ran the manifest, you know, the, the flight mm-hmm. manifest, they, they, they saw right away, but, but ultimately is that, you know, we failed. And even though CIA was warning, you know, in president, presidential mm-hmm. daily briefs, um, you know, even though there was a kind of a robust effort on collection on, on certainly on, on Osama bin Laden, you know, we failed. And so, you know, now it's, you know, the, the famous line is, you know, today's September 12th. And yeah. that, that was kind of our line every day for years. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and so, but it was, it was a feeling of, uh, of that we let one go, um, and a feeling that, you know, of responsibility. So what do you do then, uh, attached to the joint terrorism task force? Or what do you do during those, the time before you go to Afghanistan? Cause you get there right. to Afghanistan in, in 2003 ish or what? You know, I got there in, in February, March Oh two. So, okay. So when I was, oh, so that's pretty quick. It was quick. And I actually, I left, uh, I left New York fairly soon after that to go to a Middle Eastern post to get kind of closer to, to the fight. And, and this is very similar uh, probably to your old line of work. Everyone's begging to go. Like I, oh, I feel yeah. you know, our headquarters personnel, you know, I, I was, on, everyone's on the phone with that. You know, they, they, you know, it's just like, get me on the next plane out there. And, and in fact, you couldn't, I mean, they had to do this right and organize teams mm-hmm. correctly. Um, uh, but but, you know, you have to remember that in the days after 9-11, there was a, a total, complete fear that there was another attack coming. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and so and especially so, you know, if I'm if I'm, you know, you know, working with the FBI in New York City, are there are there cells in New York? 
you know, uh, you know, are there sleeper cells or the other things and, and kind of piecing together the, the logistics network that, um, you know, Al Qaeda had used. And so, but there was, there was just, you know, incredible fear of this. And, you know, this, we're going to go down a road, I probably don't want to go, but you think about, you know, some of the things the U.S. government did with enhanced interrogation techniques and all the, the things that we did afterwards, um, everything was based on that fear that, that not if, but, but when there was another attack coming and we had to stop that because we missed the first one. And so, you know, so ultimately it was, uh, it was just working overdrive to make sure that that didn't happen. We didn't know if there's sleeper cells in Queens or the Bronx um, or Brooklyn. I mean, you know, you know, and so, so you just had to run down uh, every lead. And then, uh, and then of course, ultimately, you know, the, 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 the fo- a lot of the focus did shift, um, you know, out to South Asia. November 11th is Veterans Day, but at Navy Federal Credit Union, every day is Veterans Day. I've been a member since 1996, right after boot camp and right before I went to BUDS or SEAL training. Navy Federal Credit Union is for active duty veteran DOD employees and their families. They offer resources like the VA Loans Hub and Best Cities After Service. They offer veteran employment assistance partnerships with nonprofits like The Mission Continues. They're a top VA home loan lender. They offer personal finance counseling. They offer 24-7 member service and are a growing community of over 1.8 million veterans just like you. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash veterans. Insured by NCUA, an equal housing lender. Fred Burton. Fred is a former police officer, diplomatic security service, special agent, author, and security consultant. His books include his memoir, Ghost, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent, Chasing Shadows, and Under Fire, The Untold Story of the Attack in Benghazi. He is also the author of Beirut Rules, The Murder of a CIA Station Chief and Hezbollah's War Against America. Here's Fred. The largest reward we paid under my watch, Jack, was um, to the informant uh, that set up uh, Ramsey Yosef, uh, you know, the mastermind of the first World Trade Center bombing. Yeah. So um, we paid that guy uh, $1.2 million uh, and um, put him inside of the uh, witness security program. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so our office- That's amazing. So was, how did you get involved with that one? Because that one is so uh, bombing World Trade Center- uh, he escapes, um, and is in the Philippines, uh, hatching another, another plot to bomb multiple airliners, uh, in the Pacific region, um, on or around January, February timeframe of 95, I want to say. So, uh, right. 94 he's in the Philippines, uh, testing out, tests a bomb, a successful bomb, didn't bring the aircraft down, but, uh, um, killed, I think one person, uh, and then, uh, use that as a test run for, um, uh, operation Bojinka, I think they, they called it. Um, and, and there's a fire in the apartment. One of those, whether right. it was random or somebody they're doing something, who knows, but, uh, uh su- suspicious fire de- department shows up in Manila and I think it was Manila and, uh, it was, and, and uh, and fi- Hey, there's some suspicious, suspicious here. Some guy runs off. Uh, and then that really led to the unraveling of that plot, but he still made it from there. Uh, to Pakistan. He did. And that's he where did. you tracked they, him down. Right. Um, you know, the backstory was, you know, when the World Trade Center was bombed the first time in 93, 
Uh, we obviously utilize the Rewards for Justice program to try to apprehend those who are responsible for that. Uh, and my office actually deployed agents uh, to the bombing scene. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Scotty Stewart, went up with uh, our portable Aegis uh, explosive detector device um, and, and drove that up to New York uh, to, to work the crime scene. Our New York field office was involved. You know, obviously the FBI was responsible for the overall crime scene investigation, but it was a multi-agency effort with ATF, FBI, NYPD. Uh, our office was engaged. Our New York field office was heavily involved. Uh, and, and so uh, when the fire happened in Manila, uh, the U.S. Embassy uh, regional security officer at the time, which is, you know, overseas in the State Department, special agents are the regional security officers or an assistant regional security officer. Uh, and uh, he cabled in what had happened. And of course, we offered our help to the uh, Philippine National Police. And if memory serves me right, they did take advantage of that. Uh, we offered our forensic and investigative assistance, and we eventually got our hands on um, uh, you know, some of the laptops and some of the, the data at the time. And uh, you know, that fire was set uh, I believe that he he was cooking explosives and set set the apartment on fire, uh, if memory serves me right. It's been a while now. And then he fled from there and he went um, around and then ultimately wound up in Pakistan. So uh, during this time period, we were getting sightings of Yosef all over the world. And I had by, I don't know, sheer uh, last man standing, I had somehow managed to become the deputy chief of our unit. And uh, it, it certainly uh, was no great feat on my part. I just think <laughs> I had been there longer than anybody else and, and nobody else wanted the damn job, right? It's possible, no. Yeah, nobody else wanted the job and nobody else wanted to write employee performance uh, <laughs> reviews. So uh, I was pretty good at that. Uh, so uh, anyway, so Yosef, we have him all over the place and we had all kinds of fraud, you know, um, just information peddlers. Everybody's trying to get their hands on the reward monies for Yosef. And um, I got a call on um, the secure voice phone one day when I'm in the office. And we called it the bat phone, right? Nice. And I pick it up and it was the regional security officer in Islamabad. And he was a great guy I'd known. I had worked a previous case with him. And so I knew he was a, a, a damn good investigator. And he goes, you know, Fred, we've had a uh, walk-in here. And he's not really a walk-in, but I don't want to get into details right now. But I think this informant is good. And so I kind of leaned back, you know, was like, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, you're about the 20th person to call me this week with a good informant. And he goes, he goes, no, no, you know, no BS. I think this guy's pretty good. And I said, okay, I, I believe you. And um, literally, to, to make a long story short, um, you know, I cover this in, in Ghost. Um, the informant uh, had befriended Yosef and got nervous, Jack, because he was being used as a courier run, as a dummy run, to carry these little baby dolls onto planes. Uh. And Yosef's intentions back to the Bojinka plot was to take these baby doll bombs and fan them out on different flights 
and blow up several different airliners. And so our informant had carried one of these devices and on his last trial run, the light bulb went off in his head saying, you know, I may not come off on the next plane that I'm on. Right. Here, here's so, another trial run for you. And it, yeah, yeah, it's not the trial run. Yeah, exactly. It, it's kind of like I'm sure with, you know, the teams for you guys, you know, who wants to volunteer? <laughs> Voluntold you know, like, is uh, more like how it, how it works there. Yeah, exactly. So he... Uh, Did they ever make it through with those with uh, actual explosives in there? Or was it just the the shell, like making it making it Just through? the shell, Jack. Yeah. Provided the guy was telling us the truth, right. uh, which I believe him. He, he, he turned out to be a solid informant that, yeah. that, that gave us Yosef. And he said, he had said uh, to our agents that initially debriefed him that uh, he had seen a Rewards for Justice poster. And he said, I know this, I, I know this guy. I, he's going to contact me. And that led to the kind of the unraveling. And wow. so when our agents called me, I said, well, okay, you know, tell them to call us when Yosef shows back up. And lo and behold, Yosef showed back up. I think it was in within a 36 hour window. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. Um, you know, when that happened, was I was in, a, uh, I was traveling in Australia, New Zealand in that December, January timeframe. And I remember going, I think it was flying out of New Zealand, went to Australia, but flying out of New Zealand. But um, regardless, I'd never had security, seen security switch like that. Like as I'm there, I see everything start to change and I see lines, not just forming through the regular security, but once you got to the gate, all your bags checked, your shoes off, everything, everyone individually checked before they went and got on the plane. And the whole atmosphere had changed in that airport while I was waiting there. I think it was early January of 95, I think. Um, but you could see it because it was one of those routes that may have been uh, targeted. So heading home from Australia, from New Zealand during that uh, during that time frame. But it was interesting to see security change. I'd never seen that before. Uh, and then year later, I find out, you know, what it was, what, why they were doing that. Um, yeah, crazy. But you're involved in all these things. And now, uh, Ramzi Ahmed Youssef is uh, serving a lot of time at the Supermax prison in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jack, I, I've gotten way, way too much credit for that. I, my role was, you know, um, I, I did what any of us would have done during that time frame to uh, capture this guy. One of the, one of the things that still drives me crazy, Jack, um, is I know he was in Islamabad to carry out some sort of attack. And for the life of me, we never could figure out what he was up to. Uh, and so, you know, my gut told me at the time that, uh, I mean, you have to step back and look at this time period. I mean, he had already blown up the World Trade Center mm -hmm. the first time. Uh, he had planned to kill the Pope in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. uh, he had planted bombs on airplanes coming out of the South Pacific. Yeah. And now he's in Islamabad. And he was walking around uh, the diplomatic enclave with our informant, you know, looking for homes. And I think he was very much trying to plan an attack to go after a Western diplomat of some kind, uh, probably with some sort of bomb, but I don't know. Uh, and that was one of those kinds of things that there's so many of these cases, Jack, that just haunt me because, you know, you know the target that was hit, but you don't really know all the other targets that were looked at to get to that point. Right. 
Right. He certainly and, wasn't there on vacation or just to, to retire. I mean, he was right. a very active person. Right. And, uh, you know, during that time period, the geopolitics of Pakistan were such that, you know, we we were dealing with, uh, you know, in many ways, the ISI, which was a hostile intelligence agency, uh, you know, where their loyalties lied at any given time, you know, was almost trying to like work with the KGB right. uh, when you started to, you know, get down to it. And um, so it, it was just... Yeah, there there was really no rules with uh, these folks. Wow, that's amazing. And how did where, did where did Carlos the Jackal fit into to all this? He's on your well, Carlos, he's on your, de- your desk from day one. Yeah, that's a, a fascinating story, Jack. Because you know, in my generation, when I started, he was the poster child of terror. Right. And I have a book over there called teaching- The New Jackals uh, from back in the mid nineties, maybe late nineties. I forget, but I have a whole section here of books that I've collected over time, some of these older books on terrorism from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but yeah, The New Jackals is in there and has that that title for a reason. Yeah, he was um, literally the poster child. And I remember as a cop reading about Carlos the Jackal. He was this guy that was all around the world carrying out these terrorist attacks. He had done the OPEC summit. Uh, he had assassinated a, um, a Jewish businessman in London you know, he was a paid hitman. And, you know, he was working uh, for Gaddafi. Uh, he was swimming in all these leftist radical circles with, you know, the old Italian Red, Italian Red Brigades, the Red Army faction, the Japanese Red Army, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, General Command. And he was living and moving with all these circles. So he was kind of like the poster child for somebody that you could never catch. Right. And I would sit there in my office and think, my goodness, we have Interpol, we have the CIA, we have U.S. Special Forces, we have MI6, we have everybody looking for this guy. Why can't we find him? And he was, you know, being utilized as a nation state gun for hire. So he was traveling under pseudonyms and aliases on diplomatic passports. And so it's kind of an interesting kind of bookend to your question, because if you fast forward uh, uh, many, many years later to after Chasing Shadows came out, uh, I get a call in my office one day, many years after I've left the government, from the uh, FBI in Paris. And they said, hey, we saw your book and we want to reopen this case. And they said, well, who would you interview? if you were us. And I said, you know, I would try to get to Carlos the Jackal because I could never get to him to talk to him directly. As a sidebar, Jack, I had been corresponding with his uh, first wife, uh, Magdalena Kopp, who had been a terrorist herself. And she was very helpful. It was amazing to me and still is, you know, the people that will answer my emails. But, <laughs> That's um, incredible. She had been corresponding with me and talking to me about Carlos, and I was asking her questions about the Elan murder, mm. you know, back in the 70s. And she said, well, if anybody would know, Carlos would know. So uh, I pointed the FBI in that direction, and they did uh, some follow-up interviews with Carlos, and I signed a bunch of book- books for them, and I actually shipped them off to uh, the FBI and uh, they they gave one to Carlos. No way. That's yeah, incredible. I, I, 
I, I don't think he liked it, <laughs> but, uh, that is too know, cool. That's, oh, that's my, my uh, Carlos story. Thank you so much to six hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously I am a huge SIG fan having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all, and they're always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. David Kukulin. David is one of the world's foremost counterinsurgency experts and is the author of the books, The Accidental Gorilla, Counterinsurgency, Out of the Mountains, Blood Year, and The Ledger. He served in the Australian military for more than 20 years before being recruited as the chief strategist in the Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the U.S. State Department. He was also a counterinsurgency advisor to NATO and the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. Here's David. And that became the basis for my fourth novel, uh, What the Enemy Has Learned by Watching Us on the Field yeah. of Battle for the Last 20 Years. And, um, and I always wanted to write something about that because I thought a lot about that during my time in uniform. I continued to think about that as a citizen, as an, as an author, um, what the enemy's learning by watching, because we've been essentially playing poker for the last 20 years here. And they've been looking at our cards, seeing how we play those cards, taking notes, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. Uh, and yep. that's, that's a long period of time to be able to do that. Um, yep. and in the novel, I look at two distinctly different periods. I go back to about 1979 to, I go 1953 briefly, but 79 to 2001, 2001 onward. And I have some it's older characters Iranian, that yeah. talking about Iran. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. what had some characters that are older that grew up during that time in the eighties, uh, and early nineties. And Hey, what did they learn during that time frame? And then what did they learn during that next, uh, period is when we were talking about, about terrorism, yeah. that, that different paradigm there. What have they learned in those two distinctly different periods? Um, and that brings, yeah, to dragons and the snakes. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. that's, yeah. and, and, and I, and oh, point being, I wanted to always write about that. So it was in my wheelhouse. And then I talked to somebody in, uh, in Argentina in 2017, uh, who mentioned uh, a few things about security pre nine 11 in airports and post nine 11 in airports. And I started mm -hmm. thinking about those things. And then I figure, okay, now is the time to to sit down and write this novel. And then that's right about the time that this came out. So early 2020, mm -hmm. uh, Dragons and the Snakes comes out and I'm reading it. And that really framed how I wanted to explore those themes in this fourth novel. Um, mm -hmm. And that's all due to, that's all due to you from, uh, from well, the not just me, mate. I mean, I know you get out and talk to a lot of people and you, you have a lot of your own field research too, but I'm happy to contribute a, <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. it was fantastic. It, it really brought all that together for me as I started down the path of, of writing this. But um, when you say the dragons and the snakes for, uh, for those who haven't read the, the book, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, it's actually not my phrase. It comes from Jim Woolsey, who was uh, 
uh, President Clinton's first CIA director and uh, when he was doing his confirmation hearing. So if you want to be the head of an agency um, and you get nominated by the president, you have to be um, uh, approved by the Senate and you go through a whole process for that. And when Woolsey was giving his um, confirmation testimony in February of 1993, so about maybe 15 months after the, the end of the Cold War, uh, one of the people on the on the committee said, well, how do you see the next 10 years of sort of post-Cold War environment? And he said, we've slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. So by dragon, he means, you know, peer adversary, great power states with nuclear weapons, you know, like the Soviet Union. By dragons, he, he goes on to talk about basically weak states, failing states and non-state actors. So when I decided to write this book, the first person that I spoke to was actually Jim Woolsey, and I met with him a couple of times as I was writing the book. Um, he's a fabulous guy, um, very knowledgeable on all kinds of different ranges of threats, um, uh, not shy about expressing his point of view, you know, um, not in any way politically correct, you know, he's very, very direct. And we had a great conversation about basically how we screwed it up, right, and how um, ideas that were pretty obvious to them in the 1990s, we somehow lost that during the war on terror. And basically the argument of the book is for 10 years after the Cold War, from 91 to 2001, we focused on snakes, right? Um, weak states, non-state actors, failing states, you know, Rwanda, Somalia, Liberia, you know, all the stuff we did in the 1990s. After 9-11, we narrowed that focus to just one snake you know, international jihadist terrorism. And we had such a narrow focus that everybody else was able to adapt around us and do all that learning that we've just been talking about. Today, we're in like a post-Wolsian environment where the dragons are back, China, Russia, you know, to some extent, Iran and North Korea, but really China and Russia are back in a great power um, competition. I hear people saying we should avoid getting into a cold war with the Chinese. Dude, we are already in a cold war with the Chinese. We've been in one. They've been in one with us for years. We just have, have just started to wake up. Um, and so what I wanted to show is how China, Russia, all of the terrorist organizations, Iran, the North Koreans, how they've learned in that period since, um, since Wolsey. So basically I have a chapter where I talk a lot about non-state actors and how they learn and I have a theory chapter, you know, talking about application of a bunch of ideas from evolutionary theory mm -hmm. right, to how people adapt in a, in a war fighting environment. Um, and then I have a big long chapter on Russia, a big one on China and shorter ones on, uh, uh, on, on Iran and North Korea for the Russia chapter. I actually went up to the Arctic border between Norway and Russia. And that was fascinating. Like yeah. I wanted to take that and just do another yeah. book on that. I feel like I should not read the, when they come out, read them cover to cover. I should just pick a chapter and then start my next novel. Like just get, yeah. the, get a spark or something to explore and, and start that next chapter. But that was fascinating. Yeah. What, so what inspired you to go, to go up there as part of this research? Was there something that stuck so, out? Yeah. So, well, a couple of things. One, I love the Norwegians. I don't know if you work with them much. But I haven't, but I always wanted to, I missed that part. Yeah. They're just fantastic. And, um, for an army their size, of a nation their size, I'd say no one beats them in terms of quality, and particularly their special forces are just outstanding. And um, the Norwegians played a really big role in a number of the campaigns, obviously, since 9-11. I knew a bunch of guys um, from Afghanistan and, and elsewhere, and I'd been invited to go to Oslo um, to 
speak at our conference talking about the future of uh, potential conflict with the Russians. And I was like, I'll come and you don't have to pay me, of course, but um, I'll do a little contra deal. Take me up to the Russian border. There's a special unit up there. Uh, it's sort of like, um, you know, elves running around on the border of Mordor, uh, you know, hanging out in the forest with the eye of Sauron looking at them. Um, this tiny little unit, it's about 600 people, very elite. You're about 400 miles north of the Arctic Circle. It's all forest and swamp and tundra. Uh, and um, on the other side is basically the entire Russian Arctic, you know, northern fleet plus about three divisions of airborne troops and motor rifle troops. It's a huge amount of Russian firepower uh, on the other side of this tiny little border. And half of it is um, water, so a little small boat type uh, river, and half of it is forest. So I managed to go out with these guys for a few days and um, talk to them. They, they hide in these little OPs, keep keeping an eye on the Russians, that are moving around by small boat, um, and I, I managed to you know, ride about half the border on quad bike uh, in the in the forest, right up to the edge of the of the border, like a couple of feet from from Russia. What's astounding when you see that is how much gear the Russians have up there, right? In terms of like electronic attack, um, uh, sophisticated aircraft. There's a whole nuclear submarine bastion up there, but they've also got like an entire brigade of VDV, so airborne troops that can like drop in with with weapons. They've got they got assault hovercraft. There's all this stuff out there, um, and, and but also when you look at it, you realise that their border, even 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, is not designed to keep people out. It's designed to keep people in. Mm. Um, so uh, it's a very interesting sort of verdict on, you know, modern Russia when you think about it. Uh, but the interesting thing about that area is there's a lot of Russian-speaking Norwegians. There are a lot of Norwegians who actually fought with the Russians against the Germans in World War II. Um, you know, people from... If you've ever been to Norway, bring your own alcohol because it costs like a bomb to buy like a bottle of whiskey up there. <laughs> I'll keep people, that in mind. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So people <laughs> and, and petrol too. So people drive across the border into Russia all the time to get vodka and gasoline, right? Wow. Meanwhile, Russians come into uh, Kirkness, which is the big uh, town up there, to get diapers. For some reason, the Russian <laughs> economy can't make a decent diaper even <laughs> 30 years after communism, and they and they and to get you know aircraft flights to go to the rest of Europe. So there's a lot of cross-border traffic. There's intelligence activity goes on. Um, there's cross-border movement. Uh, a few years ago, 5,000 Afghan and Middle Eastern refugees came across the border in basically one two-week period uh, in this one little crossing point up there in the Arctic. And it's like, how did they get there? You know, well, they had help, you know. And a lot of what the Russians have been doing to the Europeans and to us and to others, I think um, you can see that happening on the ground up in, in Norway. And again, I always like to make it concrete so people can have a visual, right? Yeah. And what are we actually talking about here? You can talk in sort of platitudes about the generic nature of it, but, um, you know, people, uh, you can lose people in that. So I try to be as concrete as I can. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash danger close and use code danger close 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, 
America's coffee. Keep crushing. Kara Frederick. Kara serves as the director of the Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. She previously served as a counterterrorism analyst at the Department of Defense and was a senior intelligence analyst for a U.S. Naval Special Warfare Command. Following her time at the Department of Defense, she helped create Facebook's Global Security Counterterrorism Analysis Program and led the Facebook headquarters regional intelligence team. Here's Kara. I mean, you're out there on the front lines of this thing. And uh, for people who have heard of uh, Section 230 uh, uh, passed in a pre-internet world, um, you know, people hear about it and as they're passing the TV, taking care of the kids, and they're kind of like, what? Uh-huh. So, uh, but the way I've heard you explain it before, and I love how you explain it, but it comes from what the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which also is a stra- is a is a strange title. I mean, I don't know. Some of these ones that when they have titles like that, it makes me go, hmm, interesting. So even the title of that one, I don't, I don't like. But from a pre-internet world, and it was supposed to take out content that was otherwise objectionable, I think was the, and then otherwise objectionable has turned into uh, anyone I don't agree with as big tech or maybe someone with a conservative view. Um, so that content that is otherwise objectionable seems to have been uh, interpreted to, uh, to mean what it didn't, but they didn't think it meant 1996, I guess. Uh, but um, uh, when someone else said what the 26 words that created the internet or something like that is part of that, I guess it was part of the help. It was, part of, it was trying to help build the, this new thing called the, the internet back then. Um, but uh, it's, it's really turned into a censorship, allowing people, these big tech companies to, to censor. But can you describe that, what, what really this section is and, and, uh, and how it's impacting us today? Yeah, so it's famously described as the 26 words that created the internet. And the whole idea behind Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was that it gives these um, these platforms, essentially, these social media companies, these, you know, covered companies, so these internet uh, services burgeoning, you know, in the 1990s, Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to have immunity from civil liability for content that's on their platform. So say... Uh, in the comments section of, you know, one of these new companies, somebody's like, I'm going to kill everyone. It makes sure that people can't sue those companies for something some rando posts in the comment. Mm -hmm. And it also gives them cover for sort of good faith efforts uh, to purge some of this content from their platforms as well, because you don't want smut on the platforms, right? It would just be a horrible user experience if, the first thing that happens when you open up Twitter is uh, naked bodies and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. It could be good for some people, not for me, not for my eyes or my uh, my future daughter's eyes or anything like that. So, so it basically allowed these companies to to sort of thrive and and flourish uh, without the specter of litigation sort of haunting them and and frankly stifling them in the crib. And however, uh, you mentioned the otherwise objectionable bit. I mean. You give tech companies an inch and they have taken a mile. So they've used the otherwise objectionable quote to, to frankly, just remove a lot of conservative content. And they're doing that now. So easy fix. Strike that uh, from Section 230. Don't allow these platforms to have uh, immunity from civil liability if they censor based off of political viewpoints and uh, clarify what is protected uh, under the First Amendment through Section 230 as well. Because... We're trying to drive these platforms to at least a First Amendment standard as their guiding principle, um, as something that they they look to and they value, unlike what the Twitter CEO has said before, uh, so that that can color all of their content moderation and policy decisions going forward. 
So far, we're not seeing that happening, but there's a there's a lot of stuff, a lot of drafts going around on the Hill that hopefully we'll, we'll get some purchase sooner rather than later. Yeah. So when thinking about that, you know, we've, we've been hearing this Section 230 for a while now, uh, last few years anyway. And I guess uh, government moves very slowly. It's a gigantic bureaucracy, um, but they don't seem in a rush to uh, to fix this. And they, haul, you know, they they want to calm everybody down by hauling a couple of tech executives in front of Congress every now and again and, you know, asking them some questions and and, and that sort of a thing. But uh, is the is it are they so tightly connected now, and there's so much money involved that uh, that it won't happen, or is it just going to be a delay after delay after delay, and a little bit of appeasement here and there, just to keep us distracted via these same companies with things that they can put out there to keep us from focusing on these these issues that weren't really. I mean, there are issues for us, yes, but really it's for the next generation and the generation after that. So the decisions that we make today uh, and the policies we put in place today, yeah, fine for us, but it's for our kids and our grandkids and their kids. It's for the future of this country, really. Um, and you're on the front front lines of that. But is, is, the, is the connection now so tight and are they so powerful, big government and big tech, that, uh, that if we get anything, it's just going to be a little bit of appeasement? Honestly, so I'm not a cynic. Um, and I know. Sorry, gonna, sorry. I try to remain hopeful publicly, <laughs> no, but <laughs> no, no, no. I and I'm going to be pretty controversial here for a a buttoned up conservative uh, in D.C. But I I think that that Washington has lost the plot. Um, I think the hope is in you know the new younger generation of representatives that understand the threat that are you know intimately familiar with how these companies work. Um, and they're willing to, you know, people like Blake Masters, uh, J.D. Vance is really smart. We don't endorse candidates at the Heritage Foundation, but on this topic, these guys are great. Mm. Um, and they understand the dangers because right now, sort of establishment D.C., there's, <laughs> again, not a cynic, but there's so much money to be had from these tech companies. If you've seen some of the figures, they're doling out tens of millions of dollars for lobbying efforts. And this is manifest right now on the Hill. You know, they're about to, the Hill is about to head into August recess and they haven't brought a lot of these antitrust bills, these anti-competitive bills to the floor because, you know, Schumer's got a, a daughter, two daughters who work in tech. They've, they're just pump, pumping money and money and money into these, into these campaigns, you know, into their progeny, uh, into these industry groups that profess to sort of stick up for, um, you know, the, the regular taxpayer and the consumer, but are also taking money from TikTok. So they're effectively Chinese Communist Party shills. Uh, I, again, not a cynic, but this summer in particular, oh, it's been, it has been crazy to see how, how, you know, really, um, I think they see a lot of these um, bills potentially and these actions as existential threats, which to me is, okay, that's a good thing, right? Like if they're actually scared of what somebody in Washington will do, number one, that's new. Uh, and number two, that's probably a good thing because it's going to shape the behavior of these tech companies. Because as you said before, and I think this is the end, this is what it matters in the beginning, in, at the end of it all, is that it's about self-governance. It's about our ability to maintain a self-governing republic because right now these companies are, have consolidated power that we should be skeptical of concentrations of power. It's mm -hmm. a conservative tradition. Uh, you know, I'm a conservative, so I'm naturally skeptical of this. And all of what they're able to do to us and the content moderation uh, practices, et cetera, are downstream, as others have said, from this concentration of power. Mm -hmm. And any sort of threat to that has got them quaking in their boots. 
And it's the it's effectively delaying a lot of these anti-competitive measures that really good people of goodwill, I think, who understand the threat fully and can diagnose the problem want on the floor. So I think I think we've got an uphill battle to fight. I think there are a lot of forces against us, but I think there's sort of a next generation that understands the issue and is going to continue the fight. Well, I'm glad you're hopeful. Uh, And uh, yeah, it seems like that was Section 230 in particular or the the uh, the entire Communications Decency Act um, has really become an anti-American totalitarian tool, uh, which was not its original intent. And I always like to look back at intent um, rather than what people are wordsmithing today or twisting today or manipulating to get some sort of a, then the outcome they want. What was the original intent of something? Um, so I like to go back to that. But they don't want you to look at the original intent for the most part. Distraction, look over, look over here type of a thing. And uh, you mentioned something earlier, and I wanted to ask you uh, about it, but it's about using these counterterrorism tools uh, that we've developed, yeah, let's say let's say from 9-11 forward, um, and labeling people as terrorists or domestic extremists uh, to unlock some of those tools, some of those powers that are held by the federal government. Um, the Department of Justice starting a domestic terrorism unit to look at anti-authority and anti-government ideologies. Um, and really scare people into not questioning government policies. That seems to be their intent um, by doing these things. But we gave the government a lot of power in the years following 9-11 and now applying these labels. And I always go back to something that an old special forces sniper from Vietnam told me a long time ago. And he said, precision in language reflects precision in thought. And uh, they're using, they're certainly using domestic extremists, uh, terrorists, anti-government ideologies, anti-authority, uh, anti-authority ideologies for a reason. Um, so what, what, uh, what are you doing that's focused on that? Or what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. Oh, this is, this is huge. And, you know, apart from the, the threat of, you know, having children growing up with these devices attached to their faces and what that does for their spiritual formation yeah. and the formation of their consciences, I'd say this is the more uh, near term threat. It's not the ridge line threat as we in the Intel world mm-hmm. say, but this, the is, next ridge line. this is our near term issue. Mm-hmm. So what's happened. And I think this for, for your listeners, you know, uh, when the FBI was instructed by Merrick Garland to start tagging parents who showed up at these uh, school board meetings and protested critical race theory teaching in their public schools, when the FBI started tagging them as potential terrorist threats at the behest of the National School Board Association, which worked with the White House to construct a letter to do so, that's a problem. That's the biggest manifestation. You've got the FBI looking at parents as potential, quote, terrorists. And you and I know that like precision in language that, as you said, unlocks specific power. So it is very, very deliberate that they are using this language so that they basically can expand their ability to surveil and target everyday Americans, in this case, parents. Um, So that's just one data point. But it's again, it's pervasive. We're seeing this with the creation of the anti-terrorism unit at the DOJ, looking at anti-government or anti-authority ideologies. Mm -hmm. You'll probably remember on February 7th, the DHS issued a bulletin basically saying that spreading COVID misinformation is tantamount to terrorist activity. Uh, So all of the things that you and I used to to look at and to effectively work on has sort of been co-opted and used to look at American citizens 
rather than legitimate external threats. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem. This is a pattern of the disinformation governance board sort of doing the same thing when we're treating our own fellow citizens as the enemy and not the real enemy, which is the CCP and legitimate terrorists who are actually looking to harm us from the outside. So this to me is, is something I think that, um, you know, as, as you said, if we're going to be citizens and not subjects, we have to push against this with everything that we can, because to just sort of quietly sleepwalk into this, this system um, that, you know, works with private companies and the government together to target Americans, that is going to be our undoing. We're, we're frankly going to lose the republic if we allow this to continue. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Links to the full episodes and books are in the show notes. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. And until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.